This is Dr. David Kahn, Associate Editor of Jackian Practice. Thank you for listening to the Highlights Podcast for the November 2023, Volume 11, Issue 11 of our journal on the theme of COVID-19 and Allergy and Immunology. I would like to thank our theme coordinators, editorial board members Elizabeth Phillips and Marcus Shaker, who did a terrific job coordinating this theme and for a well-crafted editorial that adds nice context to the review articles on the theme of COVID-19 and allergy and immunology. This issue's theme is COVID-19 and allergy and immunology, and the cover is a very striking original artistic rendering of the COVID-19 virus, which has caused millions of deaths, enormous morbidity, and ongoing challenges for the entire world. This theme is a terrific collection of articles that identifies some of the lessons learned from the pandemic and also looks to the future with emphasis on the perspective of the allergist immunologist. This theme issue will certainly help all of us reflect on where we have been, the remarkable amount of discoveries that have been made, as well as steps we should take to prepare for the future. Inside the cover, there are eight separate articles on these topics. Four CME articles cover the topics of COVID-19 and its impact on common diseases in the allergy clinics. This review covers the impact of COVID-19 on asthma, food allergy, urticaria, and atopic dermatitis, and how the COVID pandemic affected care with biologics, immunotherapy, drug interactions, and telemedicine in the clinic. The second CME article is an update in COVID-19 vaccine reactions in 2023, progress and understanding. This is a must-read comprehensive review of the spectrum of immediate and delayed reactions to COVID-19 vaccines, as well as up-to-date information on how to manage patients with histories of these reactions. The third CME article entitled COVID-19 Treatments Then and Now, this review provides an excellent overview of the myriad of therapies that were studied in a very rapid fashion during the pandemic and outline those that were proven effective and those with strong or conditional recommendations against. The fourth CME article entitled, The Long Road of Long COVID, Specific Considerations for the Allergist and Immunologist. This article reviews what is known about the epidemiology, mechanisms, and management of long COVID and advocates for the allergy immunology specialists to assist in a multidisciplinary management approach to these patients. Additional reviews included are entitled Social Determinants of Health and COVID-19. This review highlights the structural inequities and socioeconomic factors that had a negative impact on access to healthcare, health behaviors, vaccine acceptance, and COVID-19 health outcomes. How likes and retweets impacted our patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. This review discusses how social media led to misinformation and disinformation, particularly regarding vaccine hesitancy, and outlines how to address vaccine hesitancy and how medical professionals can use social media to correct misinformation. Allergy and immunology physician and patient unwellness during COVID-19 and beyond, lessons for the future. This review discusses the impact of the pandemic on physician wellness and the physician-patient relationship and provides practical resources for wellness and lessons learned to improve patient care. Preparing the allergist immunologist for the next pandemic. 
This rostrum discusses the impact the pandemic had on allergy practices, research, and training, and provides several suggestions on future pandemic preparedness for advocacy, clinical practice, research, and fellowship training. Let's now move on to review highlights from the original articles in the November issue, which covers the topics of COVID-19, anaphylaxis, asthma, drug allergy, food allergy, immunodeficiency, rhinosinusitis, and urticaria. The first original article is entitled, Differences in Mortality Among Patients with Asthma and COPD Hospitalized with COVID-19 by Lou et al. What is already known about this topic? Advanced age, diabetes, and obesity are established risk factors for developing severe coronavirus disease 2019 COVID-19. However, the risk of severe COVID-19 in patients with chronic respiratory diseases is less clear. What does this article add to our knowledge? This large-scale retrospective clinical study shows that COVID-19 disease severity and mortality are worse in COPD patients, but markedly improved in patients with conditions associated with type 2 inflammation, such as asthma and eosinophilia. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Whereas current guidelines indicate that patients with asthma are at increased risk from COVID-19, our findings indicate they may in fact be protected from severe disease and death. The next article is entitled, Rethinking Immunological Risk, a retrospective cohort study of severe SARS-CoV-2 infections in individuals with congenital immunodeficiencies by Wen et al. What is already known about this topic? Outcomes of severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2 SARS-CoV-2 infections in individuals with inborn errors of immunity are highly variable. What does this article add to our knowledge? Prior study of patients with inborn error of immunity have not controlled for race or social vulnerability. We found that hospitalization for SARS-CoV-2 were associated with race, ethnicity, obesity, and neurologic disease in individuals with inborn errors of immunity. Specific types of immunodeficiency, organ dysfunction, and social vulnerability were not associated with increased risk of hospitalization. How this study impacts current management guidelines. Current guidelines for the management of inborn errors of immunity focus on risk conferred by genetic and cellular mechanisms. This study highlights the importance of considering variables linked with social determinants of health and common comorbidities as immunological risk factors. The next article is entitled, How Common Are Allergic Reactions During Commercial Flights? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Turner et al. What is already known about this topic? Global demand for commercial air travel has increased by over 7% annually since 2006, along with prevalence of food allergy. However, data relating to the reported rates of in-flight medical events, IMEs, due to allergic reactions are limited. What does this study add to our knowledge? We undertook a systematic review and meta-analysis, which found that approximately 2% to 3% of IMEs are due to allergic reactions, equivalent to an incidence of approximately 0.7 reactions per million passengers. How this study impacts current management guidelines? 
Allergic reactions coded as IMEs during commercial air travel are uncommon, occurring at an incidence approximately 10 to 100 times lower than that reported for reactions in the community. This incidence has been stable over the past 30 years despite a significant increase in passenger numbers and food allergy prevalence. The next article is entitled Disposition of Work-Related Asthma in a Spanish Asthma Cohort, Comparison of Asthma Severity Between Employed and Retired Workers by Romero Misonis et al. What is already known about this topic? Exposure to certain agents in the workplace can trigger occupational asthma or work-exacerbated asthma, both of which come under the heading of work-related asthma. Up to 16% of patients who attend specialized asthma units have work-related asthma. What does this article add to our knowledge? 80% of patients who continued to work and 96% of those who did not had moderate or severe asthma. The highest risk professions are cleaners, both domestic and industrial, and workers in the metal industry. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Because we found little difference in the severity of asthma, treatment administered, changes in lung function, or numbers of exacerbations between employed and unemployed workers with work-related asthma, advice regarding a change of job or changes in workplace exposures should be customized to the individual situation. The next article is entitled Characterization of Obesity in Severe Asthma in the German Asthma Net by Ball et al. What is already known about this topic? Obesity affects numerous patients with severe asthma, worsening quality of life, asthma control, and disease burden. Together with variable lung function changes in inflammation markers, they have not been uniformly elucidated in large cohorts. What does this article add to our knowledge? Obesity and severe asthma is associated with lower lung function and increased disease burden, more frequent reflux, depression, older age, and any smoking. However, type 2 inflammation is similarly high as in patients without obesity. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Severe asthma in patients affected by obesity is similar to and be treated just like in unaffected patients in addition to weight loss initiation to improve associated changes and asthma control. The next article is entitled Development and Dynamic Responsiveness of the Acute Asthma Exacerbation Survey in Patients with Moderate to Severe Disease by Lorenzo et al. What is already known about this topic? Existing surveys of asthma control have recall periods of one to four weeks and their validation in populations with mild to moderate asthma may make them less responsive to severe and or acute symptoms. The time to recovery from exacerbations is highly variable but understudied. Additional tools are needed to define modifiable factors contributing to exacerbation recovery and assist in the development of therapeutics for acute exacerbation management. What does this article add to our knowledge? The short recall period and expanded response scaling of the acute asthma exacerbation survey provides this low-burden instrument with the ability to assess asthma symptoms during an acute exacerbation in a dynamic range that encompasses scores from patients with severe disease. How does this study impact current management guidelines? With additional studies, 
implementation of the acute asthma exacerbation survey in clinical practice could eventually aid decision-making about corticosteroid bursts for patients with moderate to severe asthma and acute symptoms. The next article is entitled, Enabling Adults with Severe Asthma to Exercise, a Qualitative Examination of the Challenges for Patients and Healthcare Professionals by Apps et al. What is already known about this topic? Adults living with severe asthma have lower levels of physical activity compared with their healthy peers. This contributes to a downward spiral of physical inactivity, obesity, and poor asthma control. What does this article add to our knowledge? When considering patient and healthcare professional perspectives, both patient barriers and barriers within healthcare delivery were identified as challenges to enabling exercise for adults with severe asthma. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our findings identified a need to improve communication across healthcare services and enhance healthcare professional skills and education so they can better advise and support physical activity for individuals with severe asthma. The next article is entitled Association Between Aspirin Exacerbated Respiratory Disease and Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease, a Retrospective Review of U.S. Claims Data by Adame et al. What is already known about this topic? Aspirin Exacerbated Respiratory Disease, AERD, consists of three component diseases and affects a subset of asthmatics and patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. Asthma is a known risk factor for cardiovascular disease, CBD. What does this article add to our knowledge? A link between AERD and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ASCVD, has not been described. We show that patients with AERD have a higher risk of ASCVD than patients with asthma and CRS with or without nasal polyps. How does the study impact current management guidelines? Our study shows an association between AERD and ASCVD, but does not show causation. This finding may affect counseling, screening, and treatment measures for patients affected by this disease. The next article is entitled, Skin Test Guided Strategy to select alternative iodinated contrast media in patients with immediate hypersensitivity reaction, a prospective confirmative study by Lee et al. What is already known about this topic? Skin tests may help clinicians to select a safe alternative iodinated contrast media, ICM, for patients with history of hypersensitive reaction. What does this article add to our knowledge? For the patients reporting a positive skin test with culprit ICM, a negatively skin tested ICM could be a safe alternative. Meanwhile, for those reporting a negative result with a culprit ICM, changing their ICM without an additional skin test could be a safe strategy. How does this article impact current management guidelines? We propose a skin test guided strategy in details that reduced both the recurrence rate of immediate hypersensitive reaction and the severity of recurred cases. The next article is entitled, Risk of Stevens-Johnson Syndrome and Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis Associated with Antibiotic Use, a Case Crossover Study by Fukusawa et al. What is already known about this topic? 
Drugs are the main cause of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, SJS, and toxic epidermal necrolysis, TEN, with antibiotics being the most common. What does this article add to our knowledge? This study provides new evidence for the increased risk of SJSTEN associated with exposure to lincomycins, glycopeptides, aminoglycosides, phosphomycin, and carbapenems, which accordingly join penicillins, cephalosporins, macrolides, tetracyclines, quinolones, and trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, as reported in previous studies. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The risk of SJSTEN induced by other antibiotics, except trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and glycopeptides, appears low. Optimization of the benefit-risk balance of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and glycopeptides based on clinical evidence is desirable. The next article is entitled, Australian Infant Food Allergy Emergency Presentations Following Updated Early Food Introduction Guidelines by Chow et al. What is already known about this topic? In 2016, Australian infant feeding guidelines were updated to recommend early home introduction of allergenic foods actively, leading to a threefold increase in early peanut introduction. Evidence of whether this practice will cause severe food allergy emergency presentations is unknown. What does this article add to our knowledge? Changes to food allergy prevention guidelines may be driving a small increase in infant food allergy emergency department presentations, but not anaphylaxis, admission rates, or adrenaline use. The proportion of IgE-mediated food allergy presentations remain the same. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Since the implementation of Australia's 2016 updated allergy prevention guidelines, emergency department presentations have moderately increased for food allergy, but not anaphylaxis, providing reassurance for patients and providers about the safety of this food allergy prevention practice. The next article is entitled Cashew Allergy Prevalence and Sensitization in One-Year-Old Infants by Bredek et al. What is already known about this topic? Cashew allergy is one of the most common tree nut allergens. The prevalence of cashew allergy is described in six-year-old children, but it has not been described in infants. Risk factors for cashew allergy have not been described. What does this article add to our knowledge? This study shows that the population prevalence of cashew allergy in 12-month-old infants was 1.49%, and cashew sensitization was 1.96%, defined as the skin prick test results of 3 millimeter or greater. There was an association between the presence of eczema and an increase in cashew allergy, and between peanut allergy and cashew allergy. By age 12 months, only 25% of the study population had been introduced to cashew. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The prevalence of cashew allergy and sensitization helps define the development of cashew allergy early in life. Recommendations for early introduction of allergenic foods have not yet translated to all allergens. The next article is entitled, ERA-H2 Peptide Mix Improves the Diagnosis of Peanut Allergy and is Relevant for ERA-H2-Induced Mast Cell Activation by Kwok et al. What is already known about this topic? Specific IgE to four ERA-H2 peptides 
can be useful in improving the diagnosis of peanut allergy in addition to ERA-H2-specific IgE compared with ERA-H2-specific IgE alone. What does this article add to our knowledge? Specific IgE to the mixture of the four peptides using the ImmunoCAP platform adds diagnostic accuracy to ERA-H2-specific IgE. All four peptides interfere with mast cell activation to ERA-H2, and one of the peptides contains two epitopes and directly induces mast cell activation. Two key motifs are present in immunodominant ERA-H2 epitopes across UK and US cohorts. How does this study impact current management? Using a widely available diagnostic platform, specific IgE to the peptide mix can improve the diagnostic accuracy of ERA-H2-specific IgE in peanut allergy. The next article is entitled Clinical Features, Immunological Characteristics, and Treatment Outcomes of Campylobacter Species Infections in Patients with Common Variable Immunodeficiency by Roa Batista et al. What is already known about this topic? Patients with antibody deficiency syndromes, such as Common Variable Immunodeficiency, CVID, can suffer from chronic and relapsing Campylobacter species infections that may be refractory to treatment. What does this article add to our knowledge? CVID patients with Campylobacter infections exhibited a higher proportion of CD21 low B cells versus CVID controls and a decline in lymphocyte counts over time. Antibiotic resistance among Campylobacter isolates was common, but a novel treatment algorithm was successful. How does this study impact current management guidelines? The immunological results help to identify patients at risk of Campylobacter infection. The treatment algorithm should be evaluated in a larger cohort and then incorporated into guidelines. The next article is entitled, Mepolizumab Reduces Systemic Corticosteroid Use in Chronic Rhinosinusitis with Nasal Polyps by Chupp et al. What is already known about this topic? In the Phase 3 synapse trial, Mepolizumab versus placebo significantly reduced nasal polyp size and sinonasal symptoms, sinus surgery occurrence, and systemic corticosteroid use in patients with severe chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. What does this article add to our knowledge? This article demonstrates that mepolizumab versus placebo is associated with improved treatment responses irrespective of prior systemic corticosteroid use and steroid sparing capabilities overall and in patients with differing clinical characteristics. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Given the adverse effects associated with systemic corticosteroid use, mepolizumab could be used to reduce reliance on systemic corticosteroids and the associated adverse effect board burden of steroids in patients with recurrent, refractory, severe chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. The next article is entitled, Patients with Chronic Spontaneous Urticaria Who Have Wheels, Angioedema, or Both Differ Demographically, Clinically, and Response to Treatment, Results from Cure, by Buttgerate et al. What is already known about this topic? Chronic Spontaneous Urticaria, CSU, comes with wheels, angioedema, or both. The similarities and differences of these three phenotypes in terms of clinical and laboratory features are ill-characterized. What does this article add to our knowledge? The three CSU phenotypes are more similar than different. 
Patients with wheels and angioedema show as many clinical differences from angioedema patients as they do from wheel patients. How does this study impact current management guidelines? Our results support the notion that CSU, despite differences in clinical manifestation, should be regarded and treated as one disease in line with the global urticaria guideline. This concludes our highlights of the November 2023 issue of Jackie in Practice. I'm David Kahn. Thank you for listening, and I'm confident you will find this issue informative and helpful in the care of your patients, and will not only provide a look back on where we were during the pandemic, but an appreciation for the major strides forward and lessons learned to become more prepared for the future.